Have you ever wondered why the U.S. financial markets have so much influence over what happens in the rest of the world? This week's conversation relates closely to last week's episode about carry trades. And if you're new to studying the global monetary system, you might also want to go back and listen to the December 12th episode we did with James Lavish. Our guest this week is an expert in global debt markets, and this episode will help you understand the predicament central banks are in with having to raise and lower interest rates to fight inflation in their own countries, while the global system runs on U.S. dollars. It's a complicated matrix, and as debt levels rise, it's a problem that's going to get harder and harder to manage globally. You're listening to The Block Reward, the show where we help you understand Bitcoin without having to be obsessed with it. I'm Scott Deedles, and I'm the founder and CEO of Block Rewards, and part of our mission in bringing Bitcoin to the workplace is helping people understand how it will help them. So if you're ready to hear about the challenge central banks have running their own currencies in a US dollar world, then stick around, because we're about to get into it. Our guest this week is Peruvian Bull. Peruvian Bull is an American scholar, researcher, and educator hailing from the Pacific Northwest. Born and raised in Seattle, he attended a local university where he graduated magna cum laude with degrees in finance, economics, and entrepreneurship. He has studied also in South America and plans to complete a master's degree at the London School of Economics. He currently works at a private equity fintech firm as an analyst and advisor for financial services. He is the author of The Dollar Endgame, Hyperinflation is Coming, which can be found on Amazon and a prolific contributor on Substack. And you can find him there at dollarendgame.substack.com. Bull is somebody that I've learned a lot from listening to his understanding of financial markets and his Dollar Endgame thesis itself is a fascinating sort of exposition on tying together a number of complicated forces at work in the global and macro economy and relating it to Bitcoin in a way that has always helped me really understand things at a much broader and deeper level. So I'm thrilled to be able to talk to him today, and I hope you guys get as much out of this conversation as I did. All right, welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. Our guest is Peruvian Bull. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Scott. Yeah, excited to uh, to get into a number of uh, different uh, topics. So your area of expertise is a macro thesis about where the infinite expansion of the banking system is headed and what it might mean for, for the rest of us. Before we get into that, we start this podcast every every episode by asking each guest the same question. And it's sort of the, the inverse Robert Breedlove question. So instead of asking people, what is money? It's Bitcoin podcast. And can you, for our listeners, uh, in your words, what, what is Bitcoin? What is Bitcoin? <laughs> I would say Bitcoin is, you know, a peer-to-peer decentralized ledger technology that allows units of value to be transferred between users in an extremely secure way. And it's all under underlied by energy. And since energy is something tied to the physical world, it forces the actual security to be tied to physical hash, hash rate and, and power as well. And so it, it, it eliminates, you know, I, I mean, Bitcoiners already know all this, like, you know, solving the business in general's problem, proof of work. But I would say more than anything, I think of Bitcoin as like an energy currency as something that's just like how gold used to be, or even dollars used to be tied to gold. There's since it's tied to the physical world and tied to energy, it's it's limited in supply and and limited in in how you can uh, manipulate it. Right? It's very difficult to. It's I mean you can't create new units other than the actual um, block rewards every 10 minutes. So that's what I would say it is. It's it's just a system of transferring numbers between different, you know, accounts. And that may sound extremely simple, but it's that's essentially how money works. And that's how that's how the euro dollar system works, that's how banks work. They just have different accounts and they transfer on internal ledgers. The difference is banks use something called SQL ledgers and the Fed uses a massive SQL ledgers to manage reserves and they can since it's centralized, they can they have almost infinite transaction speed, right? They can they can scale the system up to handle 70,000 transactions a second because all, all it is is their internal ledger with one node, you know, making all the changes in the ledger. And so Bitcoin's different. Bitcoin's decentralized. So it, it brings in more complexity, but it brings in much more security and, you know, therefore transparency and, and value because it's not controlled by a singular entity because any single entity can be corrupted. So that's what I would say. It's uncorruptible energy money. That's a great answer. I uh, we, we get something different from everybody, and uh, so I, I you know I, I love asking this question, and the, I never exactly heard it phrased exactly that way. You've gained some notoriety for a compilation of your different writings, which you put together in, in a book that's called Dollar Endgame. 
And could you, we just talk, tell, tell us a little bit about the book and your, and your dollar endgame thesis. Sure. So I actually wrote the, the book as a series of Reddit posts back in 2021 because I was getting to arguments on finance subreddits about how monetary economics works, how the global reserve system works, you know, what was the role of gold. And so I decided to start writing and, and I'd done about six years of economics research beforehand just as a personal like passion project of mine. And so I wrote the first post and people loved it so much. They said, you need to write the next, ser- the next post on the next post. And so I eventually wrote an entire series. But I would say the, if, if I could summarize, you know, the dollar endgame shortly, it's, you know, the U.S. has, the U.S. is a global reserve currency. And so therefore we face something called Schriffenstalema, which means that the global, the global system has demand for dollars. But the problem is other countries cannot print dollars. They need to borrow, spend, and lend in a currency that they cannot print or create. And so what they have to do, or what we have to do as a, as a, as a reserve currency, is we have to export dollars on net. We have to fund these, these global deficits, these dollar deficits. And what Triven noted was, under the gold reserve system, if we do this, in the long run, we'll be, de- we'll be printing way more dollars than would otherwise be justified, and therefore we'll be devaluing our reserve ratio, and therefore will eventually cause a run on the dollar itself, a run on gold. Because, you know, there'll be all these excess dollars overseas, and we'll, we won't be able to defend the $35 an ounce pay. And um, he said, you know, the other option is that we don't fund these deficits, so we don't run current out deficits, we don't run trade deficits. And we just let the global system kind of grind to a halt because there's not enough liquidity in the system to service dollar debt and there's not enough liquidity to, to fund international trade. And uh, his thesis was actually that there's going to be a massive deflationary push globally. Uh, if you read his book or if you read his, his report that he, he put out after his, his appearance in 1960, put it out in, I believe it was September or October of, of that year because he, he appeared in February of 1960 in front of Congress. And, you know, that, that deflation, deflation never came to pass and said it was a, a great inflationary spike. And all this was because the U.S. decided to choose the first option, which is to, to devalue their, our own currency, to print dollars and spread them overseas. And post-Nixon, we broke the, the link to the gold standard because that was breaking. But now U.S. treasuries became the global reserve asset. And so we've been exporting treasuries and exporting dollars for the last, you know, 40, 50 years. And the problem is, is that although this has allowed US, the U.S. government to borrow at extremely low rates for decades, it's provided constant buying, buying power for the U.S. dollar because we're running dual deficits, right? We're running fiscal deficits and current account deficits, which normally means for a country that your currency devalues, like we saw in Thailand like we saw in the Philippines, like we see in Argentina. And the U.S. currency doesn't really devalue. And the reason why is because there's this persistent inbuilt demand globally for dollars because everyone needs dollars for global trade, to hold us forex reserves, to settle debt between each other. And so because of this, the, the U.S. has been able to build up these massive, you know, deficits without seemingly any consequence. And, and basically the thesis is now all these deficits have built up, all these dollars have built up overseas. Right, there's 20 trillion dollars uh, trapped in the euro dollar market. There's seven trillion dollars of treasuries held by foreign institutions. If you can look, you can look up on the Fred website. There's 42 trillion dollars of U.S. equities and corporate bonds held by foreigners, which is of course like greater than any other country. And if we lose reserve status, and if another reserve currency comes along, and another way of transferring value comes along, and these countries no longer need to hold dollars to settle debts and hold dollars to trade with the U.S. or trade with anyone else, then what do they do with these excess dollars? And the thesis is they'll start selling them and the, you know, the usurper will be Bitcoin. And by the, by the, by the fact of them selling their equities and their bonds and their treasuries, the U.S. will experience a massive crisis and the Fed will have to respond with QE. And that's essentially the thesis in a nutshell is we, we have the sort of Damocles, right? We have the greatest power available in the, in the global monetary system, we're the reserve currency holder, but we also have the greatest risk because if we lose this, it's going to be very, very bad for us. And again, this won't be a three-week process or three-month process. This takes a lot of time. But it, as foreigners divest from U.S. treasuries and U.S. debt, it's, it's dangerous for us because now we're losing these buyers and we have to fund these things internally. And there's only so much balance sheet capacity that our retail investors have or our banks have until they run out and the Fed has to restart QE. Yeah, it's it's a huge problem to wrap your head around. You said, you know, maybe to just touch back on one of those specific things you said in relation to the U.S. is also uh, as 
as the as a net exporter of dollars, they're but they're also growing their own balance sheet debt. So could you just talk a little bit about problem of the growth of indebtedness and what it means for Sure, sure. So I wrote a piece called The Monetary Event Horizon, which actually went went pretty viral. And it, it it's trying to like display this exact problem, right? The debt growth is by definition a nonlinear process because the way interest rates work and compounding interest works, if you have something growing by 7% a year or 5% a year or 3% a year, that will result in a nonlinear, you know, an exponential line. But there are things that can happen that will accelerate this. And the U.S. is currently entering this paradigm of, you know, inflation ripped. The Fed, you know, ran QE, the largest QE program ever, ever made in 2020 to get us out of COVID. And the, and the Treasury paired that with fiscal deficit spending. And what that means is previously in 2008, right, there was a massive, massive explosion of, uh, of QE and there was an explosion of debt. But the issue is, you know, inflation never came. All these gold bugs and these doomers ran out and said, you know, we're going to see hyperinflation, 20% inflation within a year, buy gold, buy silver, it's all over, the dollar's doomed. And yet inflation runs at 0.1. And it went negative for like a single quarter, I think, in May of, or yeah, in spring of 2009. And then it went just almost flat for a year and a half. And then it slowly climbed back up. So this inflation they feared never came. And the reason why is because the Fed actually doesn't create dollars and not as the way you and I think about it. They create bank reserves and bank reserves are liabilities of the Fed and they are assets of banks and they're basically a form of bank money that banks can trade in between each other for financial assets. So they're trapped. No, if you give Nomura $100 billion of bank reserves, they're not going to, they can't go out and buy big backs and house, you know, and like, um, well, they actually can buy houses because of more direct securities, but like they can't buy Big Macs and they can't buy, you know, normal cars. But what they can do is use that to speculate in financial markets, speculate in mortgage-backed securities, speculate in equities, in derivatives. And so you push up the price of all financial assets. And so what the Fed was able to do was create massive inflation, but only in financial assets. But when you pair deficit spending with this, it becomes real world inflationary because the treasury is the secret link between the financial economy and the real economy. As you increase treasury spending, you increase treasury borrowing by definition. And whenever the treasury borrows, it you know creates a bond, it sells it, it swaps it for a bank reserve normally, sometimes deposits because retail investors can buy as well. But when they swap it for a bank deposit or bank reserve, sorry, this bank reserve comes into the TGA, their general account, which is their, their checking account. And this bank reserve gets magically transformed into basically M2 money supply um, or potential, I should say, potential M2 money supply. Because once it's drained from the TGA and spent in the real economy, they spend it on, no, they go you know, buy some tanks or they go pay pension employees' payrolls or government payroll or healthcare expenses or whatever it is. This flows out into the coffers of real people and then it's, it's, it increases M2 money supply by definition. You can see this if you look up M2 money supply post-COVID it spikes up massively. And it does this in tandem with QE. And this is because, and the TGA also you know, ripped upwards and then retracted downwards. And this is because the treasury is getting all these bank reserves and then spending these, you know, through the magic of its own accounting tool, it's able to change these bank reserves into basically deposits, spend them into the real economy and increase M2 money supply, which is circulating money, which increases inflation. And so as the U.S. is running into this problem, right, this debt problem, where as inflation rises, so, you know, the Fed is kind of trapped. So as inflation rises, they're faced with this dilemma. Do they raise rates or not? And the problem is the traditional Keynesian belief of raising rates stopping inflation. It is true, but it comes with a big caveat, which is what I call the Peruvian bull debt paradox. As rates rise and as the treasury is the most indebted entity in the system, the Fed is hiking rates on no one more so than the treasury because the treasury has the most debt. They have the most stuff to reset. And so as they raise rates, they're increasing interest rates on everyone. Yeah, they are slowing down inflation. They're slowing down lending, but they're also increasing the amount of interest expense that the treasury is having to face every single year. And all these treasury securities are starting to reset and this is causing a massive problem for, for markets and, and, and pushing us down this debt spiral. And so, for example, this year was the first year ever that we hit $1 trillion in interest expense. In June of this year, just from the beginning of the year to then, we had hit $608 billion of, interest, of gross interest expense. If interest expense continues at this level, within a few years, it'll be 50% of all federal tax receipts 
And within about seven years, it'll be 100% of federal tax receipts. Now, that's just gross interest expense on the debt. But if you include what Luke Groman calls the true interest expense, which is entitlement spending, defense, and gross interest, we're already there, Like, which is, which is shocking. In October of 2021, he came on a podcast and laid out his thesis and pointed out that if you include all these numbers and treat them as interest expense, which in many ways they are because they're unfunded liabilities that the government has, basically has to pay and politicians will never cut, we were at 111% of ta- federal tax receipts in October of 2021. And so we're at this juncture where the Fed is kind of screwed no matter what they do. If they lower rates and begin QE again, well, the f- treasury deficits are high. You know, we're, we're, we're going to have $1 trillion deficits for the next 10 years, at least, if not more, 40% more than last year's deficit. And we're doing all this without a recession. So if the, if the Fed re- restarts QE, that will restart the inflationary wave, which will, re- which will increase government spending by default because prices of everything rises. The government has to pay more for their goods and services. So the deficits rise as so the government needs to borrow. That pushes us further down the debt black hole. Or the Fed raises rates, interest ex- gross interest expense rises. Then the cost of the debt, of course, rise. The Fed has to, or the Treasury has to borrow more and we go further down the black hole. And so whatever, whichever choice they choose, whatever the dilemma is, we're going to move further down this, down towards the event horizon. And again, it's in many ways, like I've pointed out, we've already passed the event horizon. The, the fiscal situation is just getting worse by the minute. And so the question is, how long is this sustainable? I don't know. Uh, we've had some of the worst Treasury auctions uh, in the last few months. Um, like the, we had a five-year, we had a 30-year auction that tailed the most in two years. We had a five-year auction with a very low bid to cover. We've had just signs of, of stress in the market. And, and the treasuries responded this to this, by the way, by changing their issuance schedule. So they know that the, the long end of the curve is getting beaten up really bad. And so they changed their auction schedules to issue way more bills and issue much fewer bonds and notes. So Fewer of the 20-year and 30-year, they decreased that by about 30% each, and they increased the bill issuance by 70%, and so, um, at least in the short term. And so by doing this, what they're trying to do is manage the yield curve and not let things blow out too much, especially on the long end, because there's a lot of banks that own 30, 20, and 30-year bonds that are, that are hurt, that are bleeding. And that's evidenced by the usage of the BTFP. And so, you know, Michael Howell points this out. He's a, the author of Capital Worse, and he's a, a fund manager at Cross Border Capital. And he, he pointed out that, you know, 71, I think it's, he said 71% of treasury funding in Q1 of 2024 is going to be done by T-bills, short-term instruments. And, you know, this isn't, this isn't a good idea. Moving at all the entire yield curve to the short end and just refinancing the government on a month-to-month basis, it makes us extremely sensitive to interest rates as a whole. And it's it's not a good idea. But it, I don't know what else they can do. I see their dilemma. Like, they can't let the 30-year keep falling like this. It's, it's not sustainable. So the U.S. is in this predicament where their own operating expenses are accumulating, uh, but they, they have to manage the reserve status of the global need for more dollars. If we look outside the U.S. to other countries, you know, sort of what we see is greater levels of indebtedness. They have that need to be sort of net importers of dollars and don't have the ability to make dollars. So maybe just talk a little bit about what that dynamic means for other countries in the G7, G20 as they sort of watch this um, uh, play out for the Fed as spectators. You know, I've, I've talked to Brett Johnson, Scientific Capital, about this because his theory, like, it was fascinating. When I first read about it in 2017 and 2018 and, and dove into the dollar milkshake, I was absolutely fascinated because it was, it was contrary to a lot of the stuff that I'd previously come to believe, right? And one of the things he says that I love is the crisis begins at the periphery and moves to the core. So basically it means that the U.S. will not be we won't be the first to be facing this problem. Uh, and, and it won't hit us the hardest first. It'll hit other countries harder first. So this is exactly, I mean, you kind of laid it out. Like all these countries have the same debt problem as the US. And to differing degrees, they have different fiscal situations, they have different levels of deficits. But basically there's inflation that's happening on a global scale. This, this isn't isolated to America. And as these countries inflate, uh, their currencies fall in value against the dollar. And the problem is, is there's only so many, they only have so many dollar reserves if they want to defend their own currency, if the value, if the trade value is falling. And the trade value of the currency falling is important 
because it increase it generally it increases inflation in their own country because it increases the price of imports. And a lot of these countries owe a lot of their economic activity to importing. You know, Britain and, and France, for example. Germany is a, a huge net exporter, and so they're less affected by this. But they still are, of course. They still import a lot of goods, mainly energy. And so all these countries have these dollar liabilities. They have to trade. They have to have forex reserves. And all of this has to be done in dollars, which they can't print. And so they need to acquire dollars. And so as the Fed raises rates, especially as the Fed raises rates faster than their domestic central banks are raising rates, you know, these carry trades occur, which pulls capital into the U.S., shorts their own currencies, pushes their value of the currency down. And the only thing they can really do to defend this is to dump their forex reserves to stop this. But ironically, this is counterproductive because their forex reserves exist primarily in the form of U.S. treasuries. And as they sell U.S. treasuries to get their hands on dollars to buy back their own currency to defend their pegs or defend, like, let's say it's a loose range because there's not really any pegs post-1971, except for a few you know, exceptions. As they do that, as they sell treasuries, treasury bond prices fall, treasury yields rise, and the yield differential between their economy and the U.S. increases. And it is bad for us because it means yields will can rise faster here in the U.S. than we expect. But it means this these carry trades get more and more profitable, more and more money piles into them, and therefore their currency falls more and more. And so whatever they do is a temporary measure. And so these countries, you know, basically what Brent says, and I now that I understand his thesis better, I, I agree with him, is as this global, you know, as we come to the, the latter stages of this global debt and currency crisis, these countries will be hit harder and faster than we will be. That's not to say that we won't be hit. That's not to say that we won't be hit extremely hard. Like I laid out at the beginning, potentially we have, you know, room for disaster because we have the most, there's more liabilities denominated in U.S. dollars than any other currency. All other currencies basically combined. So we, we have a huge risk out there. But the question is, how, you know, who gets hit first and how hard did they get hit? And it's probably not us. It's probably the UK. It's probably Japan. It's probably the Eurozone because all these countries have the same debt problem as us, but they don't have external demand for their own currency. And so their currency value can fall a lot faster and a lot quicker than ours can, at least in the, in the early stages until we move to a new reserve currency. Which can happen soon enough. So I, I want to I uh, zero in on one of your examples there. You, you put out a great video in October on your YouTube channel called The Maginot Line. And it's a, a video about what is going on with the Bank of Japan. And Japan has been in kind of a 30-year economic malaise where they have been experimenting with central bank intervention in a, in a sort of very extreme way that has attracted a lot of carry trade, external investment. Maybe let's talk a little bit about, about what the Bank of Japan is doing specifically as they try to defend the yen in this, in this predicament that we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess I should start with a little bit of background. You know, Japan is a really interesting economy to study because Japan is uh, an aberration in every sense of the word, right? We completely destroyed, you know, the country in World War II, bombed most of their major industrial cities, and in 46, we helped them reform their own constitution, which is kind of basically just a westernized constitution we imposed on them. And then they began rebuilding. And over the course of the 60s and 70s, especially, their economic growth went into overdrive and they industrialized extremely rapidly and they moved into high-end tech products and high-end manufacturing products, cars, you know, appliances, electronics, et cetera. And they were able to become you know, the third most um, powerful country in terms of GDP in the world just by 1980. And so they had, they had this massive population boom that was coming post you know, World War II, but the population boom be, began to crest in the late 80s and early 90s. And then they experienced this, what you reference as economic malaise, basically 30 years of extremely low growth. And the Japanese are also different from most other countries culturally because, you know, they're extremely industrious, extremely hardworking, very orderly, very conscientious. And they also exhibit extreme savings bias because Japan has not really had an extreme inflation event, at least in, in recent past. And so there's no memory of, of hard inflation. So savings vehicles are extremely popular in Japan. And so money velocity is extremely low because of this. And inflation is extremely hard to come by. And so for the last 30 years, the Bank of Japan has been trying to stimulate growth. And their stock market, you can look at the uh, chart of the Nikkei, it you know, was peaked in 1989, 1990, and then it bottomed. It fell like 40, 50%. And then it just, it, it didn't recover for a, you know, 
decades. And the Bank of Japan tried several different things to fix this. They started with QE in 2002, actually, a small program, but they eventually grew it, of course, especially with the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, they, were the f- they were the ones to term the word quantitative easing and quantitative tightening because it was their technical idea. Because they were, what they were trying to do was inject bank reserves into the system, encourage lending, encourage uh, securities speculation, grow the stock market, which would induce what's called the wealth effect, which would hopefully get people to spend more. Right? All of this was a bid to get inflation back up, consumer spending back up. And then we have the 2008 financial crisis, more QE. And in the mid-2010s, we start running into this problem of, we start running into this problem of Japanese bond rates are pretty high. And through this process of, you know, Japan trying to get out of this crisis for the last 30 years, it's been piling on debt. And at the time, you know, debt was 200% of GDP, that was at 226% of GDP. It, 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 it's at an extremely high level, almost, basically unsustainable. And so the bank had decided that we're go- we need to enact something called, again, they, they used one perspective of their monetary toolkit, invented something called yield curve control. And yield curve control basically means we're going to, instead of running the short end of the curve, which is basically setting the Fed funds rate and letting the rest of the curve do whatever, it's want, whatever it wants, we're going to push and move the entire curve up and down because we want to control all interest rates or at least all risk-free interest rates for the for our economy. And so that means that they have to be able to, to buy these bonds. They have to have an open QE program of basically without a limit on it, saying like, hey, whatever, however many people try to sell past a 0.5% cap or 10, 1% cap or 2% cap will buy every bond that pushes past this cap to keep to keep this cap active. And so within nine months in 2016, they started this program in September of 2016. Within nine months, they pushed basically the entire yield curve down to the zero bound. And some parts of it actually negative, um, which is really interesting. Like buying a negative yield bond is something you're, you're risking your own money and lending you know, and losing money in the process. It doesn't, it, it, it bucks all traditional financial uh, education and theory. And so they've been running this program for, for years. But the issue is, especially since COVID, as they're continuing to run this program and as global inflation rising, as their own inflation is rising and they're running fiscal deficits, they start seeing actual inflation in their own currency. And then they start seeing weakness where the Japanese yen went from 100 to the dollar and it pushed all the way to 150 in September of 2022. And then it retraced a bit. And then in just last month, you know, late October, it, it, it passed the 150 mark. Again, it went to 151. And the, and the bank was running into this issue of, okay, well, how do we fix this? Because we're running this program of yield curve control, which means we're running basically QE. We're printing yen every time the bonds go above this cap that we'd set, which was originally basically zero. And so in December of 2022, they said, we need to relieve a little bit of pressure on the Forex markets because... They were at the same time dumping dollars to buy yen to support the yen at 150 level. And they were printing yen to hold the bond yields down below 0%. And so it's the most, I, I had a tweet that one that, that people liked at the time. I was like, this is like slamming the gas and the brakes on the train at the same time. You're doing two counterintuitive monetary policies at the same time that are self-defeating. They, they counteract each other. They're opposite. And you can't do this forever without... You know, uh, of course, you can print infinite yen, but you don't have infinite dollar reserves. And so as you do this, you're just burning your dollar reserves like nothing else. And so, you know, this this process is really unsustainable. And so in December, they were like, OK, we're going to relieve a little bit of this pressure by lifting the cap to 0.5 percent on the 10 year, which means now instead of having the 10 year trapped at zero, we can let it rise to 0.5 percent. There was immediately a margin call issued. Um, by the Japanese Securities Clearing Corporation, a bunch of carry trades unwound. You know, long bond investors got wrecked. Uh, there was a sharp correction in the Nikkei for a few days. It was it was pretty rough. And but then things stabilized, and you know the market kind of accepts this new range of zero to zero point five percent, and we kind of trade in that in that range. And then you know the market starts testing the upper <laughs> upper band of that yield curve control again. Bonds keep rising up. The, the Bank of Japan starts doing unscheduled bond buying operations. And this, you know, and six months later in June, they decide, you know, they, they have two or three days of unscheduled bond, bond buying operations, which basically means like emergency QE, right? And, and they lift the cap again. They lift it to 1%. And again, the pressure's alleviated a little bit. The yen strengthens, goes back from 148 to 146. And, you know, we're, we stabilize the situation a bit because now this pressure in the bond market has been alleviated. The amount of QE and money yen printing is is lower. 
And so there's less downward pressure on their currency. And then comes, comes um, their, their most recent BOJ meeting in late October. It was October 31st, I believe, or the 30th. And they come out and shock the markets and basically say, okay, we're, we're kind of giving up the 1% cap as well. We're going to let it rise. We're not going to have a definitive level. That's our target, 1%, but we're not going to tell people a hard level where we're going to defend the currency. Because whenever they give a hard level, the bond market will test them by running right up to that level and seeing if they're going to start buying. And so they did that. And in the short term, again, it caused volatility in the, in the yen and the forex markets. The yen, you know, ripped to 140 or 151, 152 briefly, and then back down. And the bank is, is you know, is basically having to normalize policy. And this is part of what I wrote about in the Japanese marginal line, right? Like they have this choice. They can either keep rates at the zero bound, which is basically what they need to do in the long run because of their debt situation. Or they can normalize rates, but if they do that, their currency will blow out. Or they can normalize rates, which will defend their currency, but they will be sacrificing their bond market and they'll be starting themselves down a severe debt spiral path. And we just for, for context, I ran the numbers when I wrote this piece. Every 1% increase in interest rate means that their interest expense as a percent of GDP goes up by 2.26%. And if they normalize rates to where the Fed is right now, the Fed funds rates, they'll be paying 13% of their GDP annually in just interest expense. And that's more than what their fiscal deficit is. So that means they'd be paying just like, you know, the U.S. will eventually be paying more than their federal tax receipts or more than their deficit spend, more, all their deficit spending will be going towards interest, right? If they were just devoting it all to interest expense. And, and probably they won't. They have to spend on other things. So their deficit spending will shoot through the roof. And so as this, as this process plays out, as the Bank of Japan allows rates to rise and allows the pressure to alleviate off the currency, they'll be putting more pressure on their own treasury to, is, to go further and further into debt and to increase their own interest expense. And so it's, it's unsustainable. Right, they. I think they're. They will eventually have to allow their currency to be the release valve, and that means. And, but along the way, they're going to be defending their currency with, with dollars. And Japan, it's crucial to note, <laughs> Japan is the largest external holder of U.S. Treasuries. Japanese household investors are the largest external investors of U.S. equities and U.S. bonds. And since two thousand eight, a large part of the reason why we didn't experience massive inflation, we already explained the first part of it, which is. You know, there wasn't enough fiscal treasury spending that to pair with the QE to actually simulate inflation. A lot of treasury spending was just going back into the bond market in form of in the form of TARP and TAMP and other federal programs. But the Japanese, you know, and the Chinese and other foreign investors helped to buy a ton of US treasuries post 2008 to fund our deficits and push dollars back into the US. And without creating extra dollars or new dollars, which means that inflation didn't really increase. But now these Japanese household investors, you know, are running to this problem of their currency weakening. They have a bunch of holdings of U.S. dollar of U.S. dollar debt, and if they need to settle, if they need to pay for things in their own currency, they need to sell these these assets and and fund their own lifestyle, right? And the, and to a bigger extent, the Bank of Japan. If, if it wants to defend their currency as it allows, if, if it wants to stop the rate normalization process, which it will, again, it, it's, if they want to gamble running 13% of their GDP in interest expense every year, you know, they can go ahead. That will cause a different sort of crisis for them. But most likely, they're just going to have to let their currency blow out. And if they do that, along the way, they're going to try to defend it with their, with their dollar reserves, which means selling treasuries, which means $1.1 trillion of treasuries on the market to be sold. And again, it's not, this is not something they want to do. They're a U.S. ally. They trade in U.S. dollars, but it's something they would be forced to do if they want to defend the currency. And look, if they don't, that's fine, but look out below. And so kind of the reason why Japan is so crucial to, I mean, the thesis is it's essentially the bellwether, right? It's the first, it's the first one on the chopping block. They're the farthest ahead in terms of the debt spiral, um, or at least in you know, in terms of total debt outstanding, not necessarily in terms of interest expenses, percent of GDP, but um, or as a percent of tax receipts, but as in terms of total debt outstanding, which means that once they increase interest rates, their speed into the black hole will just be much faster. They'll race ahead of everyone else, and so they're a bellwether because they're the furthest down this path of 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 debt debt accumulation. And if they start falling and they their currency starts starts running into crisis mode, you know this instigates the dollar milkshake of 
They sell their U.S. dollar assets. This increases yields in the U.S. This increases carry trades. This causes dollar shortages for them, which causes the value, ironically, the value of Dixie to start rising, which starts causing currency crises in other countries as well. And so this is why, like, for example, last September, that's when, that's also when global liquidity bottomed. Last September 2022, we saw China, you know, the, Japan, the U.K., and the and euro and the the europe the euro all run into currency crises at the exact same time right the euro broke a dollar the pound neared a dollar the yen was at 150 the yuan was at 7.3 which is the peg that they've been trying to defend for the last like seven years so all these currencies hitting crisis levels against the dollar at the same time is not a coincidence it's just a it's an example of 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 a strong dollar and dollar shortage and again, anything these countries do by themselves is is going to make the problem worse. Either dumping dollar assets, or you know, trying to raise interest rates to match the U.S. will just increase their own fiscal situation, the the the, the danger of their own fiscal situation. And really, the only solution, like I've said, is for the Fed to restart QE. If they want to avoid a currency crisis in these countries, they have to open dollar swap lines and print dollars and send them over to these countries and flood their system with dollars to keep the dollar weak. But eventually this will cause only more inflation in the US uh, and elsewhere. So basically the whole global system is tied together with these intricate chains and we're at the point where anything anyone does kind of makes the situation worse in the long run. And again, this, this, like I said before, this process doesn't take, you know, one month or two months. This is a years long process. Currency crises take years to play out. Same with Thailand, same with Argentina. But, you know, math is, math is a certainty and nobody can outrun compounding interest. So there's nothing else they can do. You mentioned an interesting point about uh, you know, Japan as a U.S. ally. And this is where I think it's, you know, nobody, nobody wants to screw things up for everybody else. But at the end of the day, there, there is an aspect of self-preservation. And when the rubber hits the road, this is how governments get toppled, right? Like people are, will be first responsible for sort of doing what they can to, to create stability and certainty in their own countries. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, they're all tied together with the same, you know, their first, you know, responsibility is to their own constituents, not to a foreign government. And even though they may want to please the U.S., they may run into this problem and they may ask the U.S. and the U.S. may refuse. And if they do, then they have to sell their treasuries. I mean, there's no other option. And this is, like I said, this is the sword of Damocles. This is what Bitcoiners even don't realize is that if Bitcoin becomes a world reserve currency, it by necessity means the death of the dollar. And, you know, because all these dollar liabilities that somehow, that and all these dollar assets that exist in the system that are held by foreigners, now the foreigners don't need them. If the foreigners can fund global trade and run global trade on, on Bitcoin on the base layer, and if they can fund Forex reserves and banks can, can transact with each other and lend with each other on layer three and use Bitcoin as the final settlement layer, then why would you need dollars? You know, what What are you doing with the fiat? And so they sell these dollars. And that means at the very end of the end game, the dollar faces a massive wave of selling pressure, tsunami. And again, this is this all is all reliant on base layer adoption. This is why base layer adoption is important because if base layer adoption grows, it can change things very quickly. Yeah, well, one of the ideas that's never made any sense to me at all is this idea of Bitcoin-backed currencies because for exactly the reasons you just said it, it it's totally redundant. Yeah. To so to maybe just to to loop all that into a bow is this idea that externally all these countries that are facing their individual predicaments essentially are faced with this hard dilemma that probably results in printing. And it probably culminates in the US having to print more too. Is that fair? Have I yeah. Yeah, that's that was that's that's essentially right, you know. And Ironically, most of the, you know, if you talk to anyone on FinTwit or economists, they will say the same thing. You know, they'll, they'll say, yeah, we know this fiscal situation is eventually worse. It's just that they're in denial about how fast it can happen. They think that this might be taking another 20 years. And I think that if we were at crisis levels in September 2022 and global liquidity bottomed then, which means that central banks on net globally started adding liquidity back into the system in October, and we've been in a slight uptrend since then, that means that the system is reliant completely on liquidity and new reserves being created, which means there's no way out other than, you know, QE. It's, it's, their, it's, their, it's their solution for everything. And the markets have really become, you know, addicts of this, of this liquidity. 
I, you know, I wrote about this. There was a, a recent piece I did, which a lot of people liked. I put it, I put it on Stacker News. A lot of Bitcoiners were interested in this piece called The Simulacrum. And it was basically like a, a dissertation on what financial markets are supposed to be and, you know, what drives them and what should drive them. And essentially what I was saying is that financial markets are an abstraction of the real world, right? An equity is an abstraction of a real company. A bond is an abstraction of the base, base layer money. It's just a promise for the same unit of money paid over time. You know, money itself, currency itself is an abstraction of real money, which used to be gold, right? And so all of these things are just abstractions. They're just, they're just abstract ideas of, and ways to trade things without having to move the physical, uh, to the way to represent the physical. But what the Fed has done is elevated the abstraction above the reality such that the abstraction is more important than anything else. And, you know, they've done this through this program of QE of infinite liquidity and of encouraging derivatives growth and debt growth at infinitum. And again, you can do this a lot longer than most people think. You can obviously do this longer than the gold bugs have thought, but you can't do this forever. You can't manipulate the financial economy forever without any effect to the underlying. And when this thing finally crashes, all these financial derivatives, you know, what's the value of a financial derivative if you have 100% inflation in your country and you have to, you know, you have to eat. Like, do you care about how many Apple shares you own at that point? Or would you sell those Apple shares for dollars or for Bitcoin to, to, to feed yourself that week? So this is, the, this is the disconnection that the West is facing, is we're disconnected from reality. These markets should be extremely closely tied to base reality, and they're not. And, you know, again, this can happen for, this can be sustainable for a lot longer than people think, but it's not sustainable forever. The Fed is running out of time. They, they really are. And the, the price of the sustainability is the purchasing power of the unit of account. So maybe just one final question uh, to wrap this back around to Bitcoin again. How do you see it all fitting in and playing out? Yeah, so, I mean, this was, so ironically, a lot of the Bitcoiners have asked me this. And I, I actually was against, or not I would say against, but I was funded out of Bitcoin back in 2018 because I'd read several books that were, you know, written by software developers talking about the, the physical constraints or the physical limitations of Bitcoin of the seven transactions per second, the block height, you know, there's the block space, there's not enough block space to fund global trade. And so therefore, and the, you know, Visa handles 60,000 transactions a second, Bitcoin can handle seven, there's, this will never be a real currency. And I, unfortunately, I believed all these things on face value and I just didn't invest. And that was the biggest mistake I could have made because being disinterested in finance and economics and reading this many Austrian books for the last, yeah, seven, seven years, I should have been in on Bitcoin much earlier and gotten a lot cheaper sats than I did. But unfortunately, I didn't. And so my understanding of money came to be more complex as I started to, to dive into Bitcoin. I had a couple of friends who started pulling me in and dispelling all these counter arguments I'd previously had against it. And the main one was, the realization that our, our our financial system is layered, right? It's a we don't all transact on the same layer. There's Fed wire and bank reserves at the very base layer, which transacts an average of ten million dollars per transaction, and it only handles several thousand transactions a day. And then on top of that is the bank deposit system, which is and and um, you know M two, which is basically what you'd think of as Lightning, which is smaller transactions, credit cards, debit cards, and above that, of course, is debt right, is uh, loans, mortgages, credit lines, things like this. And so the base layer only needs to transact a certain amount of times for the layers above it to experience finality and experience settlement. And so you don't actually need all transactions, you know, the $10 million transactions and the $10 transactions on the same layer. And the growth of Lightning Network and my research in the Lightning Network really helped to eliminate this. And especially I, I knew from you know, reading about monetary economics, that in any in any monetary system, if you look at a graph of the of the transactions and then the transaction size, so meaning like you know, let's say at the bottom of the graph is one dollar, ten dollar, hundred dollar, thousand, a million. The graph will be a an asymptote, right? It'll be an exponential line inverted like this. So it'll be basically ninety percent of transactions are under a thousand dollars. Ninety five percent of transactions are under a thousand dollars. And so if you can solve the microtransactions, you take away 95% of the transaction volume from the base chain. And so that's all you need to do. And that's what Lightning Network is doing. And I've been following it, you know, pretty closely and, and the growth of it's been really great to see. And I'm probably going to open the Lightning Node here soon enough. But 
that's, you know, this dispels this problem of, oh, Bitcoin can never be a global currency because it can't handle the 60,000 transactions or 100,000 transactions per second that it needs to. It's like, no, you're right. It, the base layer can't. But the base layer only needs to settle, we only need to settle large transfers, international trade, and, you know, reserve balances changing between countries. Like if a country pays another country or a government, okay, big, big transactions over $10 million in our terms, right? Maybe over what, maybe we'd say like one Bitcoin or more. But the base layer fees will probably get so expensive. So, you know, expensive enough that it only really makes sense to transfer big amounts of money on the base layer. And everyone will just be transacting on Lightning. And again, this this brings into this this uh, question of adoption. Like how fast can we get adoption? And what I've been realizing more and more is that what we really need is uh, Bitcoin energy adoption, meaning like we need energy providers to be selling units of energy, either electricity or oil or natural gas in Bitcoin, because it's the energy is the base commodity that flows into every single other commodity. So if we're able to change the base layer of every production chain, then that means upstream, all these other components can start paying in Bitcoin or start paying in Bitcoin, getting paid in Bitcoin, and they just get to pay their vendors. I'm actually working with a, a friend I met in Colombia who's trying to drive Bitcoin adoption. He's, like, he's, he's making a company called Bit2Cash, and he's, he's getting these restaurants, getting you know storefronts, you know clothing apparel retailers to accept Bitcoin. The problem is, is that they don't have any other vendors that can accept Bitcoin. And so if we can change the base layer utilities, for example, you know, oil, gas, electricity, water to be accepting Bitcoin, then upstream, all these businesses can start, can start accepting Bitcoin because now they have someone to pay with the Bitcoin that they receive. They have a use for it. Um, but, the, you know, this is a slow process. But as this Bitcoin, again, as this Bitcoin adoption increases and people enter this new monetary system, the need for the old monetary system diminishes. And again, this will take time. This will be a slow process. But as it, as it accelerates, it will be nonlinear because <clears throat> as people move into Bitcoin, their need for dollars, their need for fiat, their need for debt will start diminishing, right? If you can pay for your food and your gas and you can own Bitcoin, you can own securities and equities denominated in Bitcoin, why are you holding securities in a dollar account? Like you don't need it. So you have this like, and I said this, on, I think it was on Monty Benz podcast. It's a, it's kind of like a whiplash effect where as we reach a certain inflection point, maybe 30, 40% global adoption, the selling pressure on fiat, right? Fiat assets, fiat dollars, fiat bonds, the selling pressure will start to increase harder and harder and harder and it'll start to devalue. And the value flowing into Bitcoin will start speeding up to the point where it's an unstoppable snowball. And that will, like I said, this will be the final, final stages of the end game. And the, the final stage will ha probably happen pretty quick, right? This rush out of fiat into Bitcoin and the adoption of Bitcoin as a, as a reserve currency and as a neutral reserve asset. Because if, you, if you've researched, again, Triffin's Dilemma or any of these dynamics, like Bitcoin fulfills every single requirement of a neutral global reserve asset. It, it's better than what gold used to be. And when we had a neutral reserve asset without having a single country fund deficit, when we ran a gold standard, we had the greatest period of economic growth globally in the human history. From 1880 to 1900, uh, the U.S., for example, was running at about 8.3% real GDP growth. I got that from a monetary history in the United States, a uh, book by Rothbard. We were running like, you know, something like 10% year over year uh, annual production growth, meaning like our, the amount of goods and the value of the goods and products we produced was growing by that much. Like it was just a massive period of growth. We started in the 1800s riding horses and buggies. We ended riding trains and, and using telegrams. And so that was growth on a sound money. And so the question is, what, what happens when we go back to that? And I think that, you know, the answer is very optimistic. The book is The Dollar Endgame, Hyperflation. Hyperinflation is coming and it's available on Amazon. I strongly recommend if you're listening to uh, get yourself a copy and check it out. Ruby and Bull, thanks very much for joining us, man. This has been a very illuminating conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and thanks for thanks for having me. Thanks for starting this podcast. It's really interesting. You know, I I need to go back now and listen to that to that podcast you you said on uh, the carry trades. What were the greatest takeaways you, you think you got from that? So the the rise of carry is an argument that the is sort of like a paradoxical partnership between central bank uh, policy interference and a systemic proliferation of carry. And uh, yeah, it's interesting because. The author is a non-Bitcoiner looking for the solution to the endless expansion of carry and 
the you know my my idea is that, it, that it's Bitcoin. So that that's sort of the uh, the conversation. Look, the the more things you I run into, the more things I realize that Bitcoin fixes and solves. And you know, I I don't want to become dogmatic. I don't want to become you know overly you know, philosophical and and rigid in my thinking, monolithic, because I think that, I think there are some things Bitcoin doesn't solve, you know, despite like, I love Saifedean, but there's a part in his book where he says like, bad managers will be gone under Bitcoin standard. And I don't know if I believe that. I think that there will be horrible managers, bad CEOs, people making mistakes, no matter what, obviously. I don't know if that's exactly what he meant, but if, if it was, and that's, I, I would disagree with that. But overall, a lot of these inner you know, intercurrency dynamics and intercountry problems that we're facing, this this ability of the US to, you know, assert itself as a global empire is only possible because of the structure of our system. And all these countries in many ways are poor or poorer than they should be because of the structure of the system, because they're not able to trade on a fair basis. They have to hold dollars. They have to inflate their own currency in order to do that, or they have to export goods at a at a reduced rate. They have to, you know, reduce the value of their own currency to get an export surplus and acquire dollars. And so the system is really unfair, and and I think that globally it'll be much it'll be a golden age when Bitcoin is adopted as a as a reserve asset, and so that's what I'm as I'm excited about. It is a doom and it is a kind of a scary title for a book, but in the end I'm actually optimistic because I think that what happens after this this period of you know global change will be extremely it'll be a new golden era, a new 1950s boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the carry piece is such a great example because it's the it's sort of the the epitome of of fake financial activity, this like disconnect from reality that you were talking about a little bit earlier. And I think that it's a solution to like, actually what you said at the very start of the conversation around tying financial activity to real energy. Exactly. To the real world, which is what it always should be. Very cool. Okay. We'd love to have you again sometime. And thank you again for joining us. Yep. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting blockrewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin Forward Benefits and Pension Advisory. For more information, find them at paramountbenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 